Our two speakers tonight are going to be the two editors of this wonderful book, which I have yet to read. I've just got my copy. Um, we're going to start with Alistair Reid, um, who's a life fellow at um, Girton College in Cambridge and author of many works on uh, trade unionism, uh, including United We Stand, sort of revisionist look at trade unionism in the 20th century. And then second, we will have uh, Peter Ackers, who is Professor of Employment Relations at De Montfort University and also the, work, the author of a huge number of works on uh, industrial relations, including work on uh, Hugh Clegg, work on um, miners and trade unions in the, in the mining industry, uh, and uh, paternalism and welfare capitalism and trade unionism. So without further ado, let me hand over to Alistair, who's going to kick us off. Okay, thank you very much, Florence, and thank you all for coming. I hope all the equipment is working as it should. You can hear me okay sitting down. It's good. Um, well, I think the turnout tonight um, indicates that the book has turned out to be perhaps a bit more topical than we had thought it might be, because we started work on this quite a long time ago, and it just seemed to become more and more topical as time went by. What I want to do, really, is just to try and give quite a quick, in 10 minutes, a summary of what is in the book. And hopefully in the way I do that to persuade you that it has something new to say about, not just about the left, but about 20th century British history. The first major step towards seeing 20th century British history in a new way is to shift our ideas about trade unions away from seeing them as channels of industrial conflict and schools of socialist consciousness, which is how they're still generally evaluated in the main surveys of the field, and instead to start thinking about them as voluntary organisations operating within a pluralist framework. So we have in the chapter by Jim Moher on Walter Citrine, the General Secretary of the Trade Union Congress from 1926 to 1946, a study of a leader steering this peak organisation away from syndicalist ideas about widespread strike action against the status quo, towards a more constructive and detailed engagement with the institutional environment within which it had to operate in the first half of the 20th century. And interestingly enough, this went along with an early realisation on Citrine's part of the threat of totalitarianism in both its national socialist and its communist varieties, and a determination to defend democracy at home and abroad, even at the expense of another war. Then we find another anti-communist and moderniser in the chapter by Callum Aikman on Frank Chappell, General Secretary of the Electricians' Union from 1966 to 1984. Actually, another electrician, we didn't consciously intend that, who attempted to make his organisation simultaneously more responsive to demands from its members within the workplace and yet more willing to trade productivity improvements for pay increases. And in Chappell's case, this went along with a willingness to think the unthinkable, an opposition to the rise of the hard left through endorsement of the formation of the Social Democratic Party and public support for its candidates in the 1983 general election. So this refocusing on a thoughtful, centrist form of trade unionism is matched in the collection by John Kimberley's chapter on Edward Cadbury, a compassionate and enlightened employer committed to implementing pioneering forms of welfare provision, training and participation within his firm in the early 20th century. 
Indeed, Cadbury's commitment to Quaker religious principles inspired him to go beyond the normal definitions of paternalism by giving active and public support to trade unions and working closely with the local organizer of the National Federation of Women Workers, Julia Varley. Moreover, if we start to rethink British trade unionism in this way, I think we may gain some new insights into the decline from its peak of power and influence in the late 1970s. As Richard Whiting argues in his chapter, <clears throat> considering trade unions as voluntary associations immediately focuses attention on the rights of individuals and the possibility of the infringement of those rights by such organizing methods as the closed shop. As a result, it was not only that a series of overreaching collective actions could be used by the media to alienate key sections of public opinion, but also that inadequate attention to the issue of individual liberties exposed the unions to legal attack from the far right of the Conservative Party. The second major step towards seeing 20th century British history in a new way is to include at the centre of the story a number of activities, mainly local, which are routinely left out of broad surveys of the period because these focus more narrowly on the development of national government legislation. And here we are particularly concerned with the cooperative movement, <coughs> municipal government and the churches. It's worth remembering that in 1945, the membership of British retail cooperative societies was around the same size as that of the country's trade unions, both between nine and 10 million members. Moreover, as Rachel Vorbergrew and Angela Whitecross remind us in their chapter, the British cooperative movement was uniquely in the world represented since 1917 by its own parliamentary party, which has worked closely with the Labour Party but retained a distinct vision of social ownership. So even after 1945, the Cooperative Party resisted any proposal that its affiliated organizations could be drafted in to administer forms of national public monopoly and continued to insist instead that any participation in cooperation should be based on the voluntary principle. Meanwhile, as Ruth Davidson shows in her contribution, working-class women activists had been able to achieve improvements in social provision through the channels of municipal government. And this was particularly effective because they knew from their own experience about the needs of the service users. Often from radical liberal and non-conformist backgrounds, they emphasized the value of participation in public life as well as material necessities. And they represent a significant strand of local citizenship which was pushed to the side by the highly centralized welfare state of the 1945 Labour government. The Protestant nonconformist churches themselves, as Andy Vale demonstrates in his chapter, remained significant players in the field of educational and social provision well into the 20th century. Thus, a striking number of familiar voluntary associations which were functioning successfully on a large scale well after the Second World War can trace their origins back to these now rather neglected roots. For example, the Boys and Girls Brigades, the Youth Hostels Association, the Ramblers Association, and the Holiday Fellowship. Of course, we cannot claim to be the first to notice the continued importance of voluntary associations and local action in the social and political life of 20th century Britain. 
A number of other intellectuals, unfortunately now routinely neglected or marginalized in the general accounts of the period, not only noticed this, but placed it at the center of their political thinking. For example, GDH Cole. In most historically informed assessments, Cole would be regarded as the preeminent intellectual of the interwar and post-war British left, but has now fallen completely out of view or is remembered only as a pioneering labor historian or at best, or perhaps worst, has come to be seriously misrepresented. As David Goodway argues persuasively in his contribution, Cole continued to be inspired by the quasi-anarchism of William Morris, never gave up his identification with the distinctive ideals of his youthful guild socialism, and deeply lamented the lack of democratic participation within the post-1945 nationalized industries. Then in the next generation, we have Michael Young, better remembered today than Cole because of his role as a prolific creator of community and educational projects, including, of course, the Open University. But as Stephen Meredith charts in detail in his chapter, this was not just a matter of personal temperamental preference, but the result of a clear-sighted rejection of centralized planning and large-scale nationalization. Having been the main draftsman, of the Labour Party's 1945 election manifesto, Young was publishing outspoken criticism of its results as early as 1948. Then from the 1970s, as Stuart White shows in his chapter, similar reservations about the welfare state became increasingly common on the British left, in part as a response to Margaret Thatcher's ability to capitalize on popular dissatisfaction. But instead of aiming for a greatly reduced public sector, such diverse thinkers as Colin Ward, Sheila Robottom, Stuart Hall, Paul Hurst, and Hilary Wainwright were broadly agreed in proposing that central government should continue to raise revenues and redistribute resources. But the use to which these were put should be decided through democratic participation at the local level, and the inevitably resulting diversity of provision should be welcomed. So that's my summary of all the chapters. I hope that you think that the book is now worth buying. Uh, I want to suggest in conclusion, in the kind of, with a kind of history and policy hat on, is to suggest that if we're looking for alternatives to the sometimes rather limited and often not very popular remedies of centralized state socialism, we do not have to try and come up with something completely new but can simply look back to the not-too-distant past, in many cases, to things that are going on in the present, give them a bit more attention, and we find an impressive menu of options to reconsider. Partnership between employers and employees within the workplace. Trade unions prepared to adapt to changing circumstances and individual members' needs. Voluntary participation in consumers' and producers' cooperatives user participation in the shaping of local social services, a wide range of altruistic member-run voluntary associations, and flexible forms of political thinking which take all of these into account. Moreover, if we find any or all of these attractive, we need not be deterred by the idea that we're being distracted by utopian fringe activities. For, as the various contributors to this collection show in considerable detail, these have not only been viable options, they have also been options close to the mainstream of the organization of labor and the politics of the left in Britain for much of the 20th century. 
we can only hope that this, that this will not be overlooked or forgotten again. Thank you. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll just take that on a little bit. I mean, um, it's a, a new history, and as Alistair said, the focus is on working people in associational life in civil society. Um, and, then in, and then we sort of build on that by, by looking at leaders. You know, we look at the different leading figures, and we have three figures in that. And then we look at intellectuals. So we're interested, in a sense, in, in, in the whole of what you might call the labor movement, but we're looking at it in a slightly different way. Um, and I'm going to focus a little bit on some of the debates and ideas behind the book uh, and, and three particular dimensions. There's one, the biggest part of the, of the book is a straight historical correction of a certain view of the British Labour movement. And, and we want it to stand as that. So it's, it's a correction of a particular Marxist, Fabian-type view of the labor movement. And, and in that sense, the book is designed to correct the image of the past that you often get. Um, and, and to argue that a lot of the time people have been asking the wrong historical, historical questions about the British working class. Um, the, the second strand, which is stressed in our, in our introduction to the book is, is what the mainstream was. So if the mainstream wasn't the state socialist, Marxist or, or Fabian approach, what was the mainstream? And we argue that the mainstream was a liberal pluralist sort of spectrum um, which we, in the, in the first chapter, we stress that it's a broad spectrum. It goes from what we call conservative realists, industrial relations, people like Hugh Clegg, for instance, right across to radical stroke anarchist type utopians. <coughs> and what they have in common is that they're not trying to build a sort of state socialist future. Uh, and we, we present this as a sort of dominant tradition but certainly not as a new dogma, you know. So it's, it's a, the book's about opening up debates and seeing, seeing the history of labor in a more complex, open way, rather than closing them down. And finally, at the end of the book, in the final chapter, we, we're trying to try and draw out some of the sort of the things that are still relevant today to thinking about society today, and particularly the debate about the balance, what I, what I termed, I think, the mixed economy between civil society, the state, and private enterprise, and what society could look like in the future on the basis of that. But I think it's important when you're thinking about the book is to realise that we're not, write, we're not writing a sort of polemical, backward-looking history. You know, we're not writing a history to justify a political position. Uh, we've written what we see as a, a genuine history of where the main centres of the British Labour movement were, and then we've drawn out from that ideas that we think are still relevant. You may wonder what, why we chose this title. Um, so I'll, I'll dissect it a little bit for you. Uh, why Other Worlds of Labour? Our, our publishers weren't very excited about the idea of Other Worlds of Labour, so it started off as the main title and ended up as the, as the second title. 
And, and there's a reason why we chose that, uh, because we wanted to address some really core British Labour history. Uh, we wanted to contend with the central debate about the Labour movement. So we weren't trying to go in a postmodern route or try and avoid those issues. We wanted to go right to the core. What was the core? The core was books like GDH Cole's 1913, The World of Labour, his, his first book on trade unions, Sidney and Beatrice Webb's History of Trade Unions, 1894, Industrial Democracy, 1897, E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class, 1963, Eric Hobsbawm's Worlds of Labour, 1984. And we were, trying to, we were trying to address that core tradition and shift it off its axis, if you like. Uh, and, and we looked at more recent versions of that tradition, people like Selina Todd's The People that came out just a few years ago. And so in a sense, that was, in, that was part of the negative project of the book, well, negative and positive. We wanted to stress the labor movement, but we wanted to change people's understanding of what we thought the labor movement was. Secondly, why alternatives to, social, to state socialism, which the, the, the publishers like rather more, for some reason. Because <laughs> um, we, we wanted to write a different sort of popular labor history. You know? So uh, an idea of a, a labor movement that was created by British working people and the intellectual responses to these from, so we're not, we weren't pushing out intellectuals, but we wanted to see intellectuals as they responded to the, the British working classes. Um, and we wanted to stress this popular 19th century liberal pluralist tradition, that it, this, this tradition had not ended in, in, at the start of the 20th century to be replaced by something, some sort of socialist system that was completely different, but this system had, had, be, had remained central through most of the 20th century. Now, it, people might have started to call themselves socialists and social democrats and so forth, but the same sort of ideas were still running through their blood. And that's, that's a central aspect of the book. Uh, and, and people as diverse as, as Edward Cadbury, Walter Citrine, um, GDH Cole, Colin Ward, we, we argued that you know, these people, different as they are, they have this sort of, this common strand, this liberal pluralist strand running through them. So in a sense, it's just to argue that the, the history of labor in Britain is not uh, some sort of Marxist or Fabian path to state welfare planning and nationalization by experts. It's a different type of road. Um, and this, this means that parts of the book are actually critical of the 1945 settlement and of the, the particular statism of 1945. I suppose what you might say is that we see 1945 as a sort of mixed blessing. Uh, that there are, there are good things there, there are important things there, but there are also losses. Um, particular losses, for example, in the chapter by Ruth Davidson on women and welfare, losses for the influence of women, ordinary women, over the welfare system. Uh, also st stressed in Stuart, Stuart White's chapter as well. So in a sense, what we're trying to do with the book is, is to shift the debate about labor onto a, into a different frame, uh, onto a different axis, if you like. So this, you know, this is not the labor history project set by the Communist Manifesto in 1848. You know. So much of British labor history has been people trying to explain why the British working class didn't behave in the way they were supposed to do, according to the Communist Manifesto, according to Das Kapital. And so you 
develop a whole, uh, you know, so much of it is based around the idea that there should have been a forward march to proletarian unity, state socialism through class struggle, overcoming and explaining away all sorts of national obstacles. So, so much of British labour history has been, what's wrong with the British working class, you know? Uh, there's a labour aristocracy, there's the problems of utopian socialism, there's the problems with labourism, there's the problems that, you know, why are they so religious for so long? Isn't it annoying, you know? Uh, and, and things like this. And in a sense, what, we, what we're trying to do is say, well, you know, let's look at what they were rather than what they weren't, especially since some of these other roads didn't really lead anywhere very happy, you know? Um, so that's a, a big theme of our, our introductory chapter as well. So we're trying to put, bring out a sort of rich and varied national tradition, which has, still has a lot, a lot to be taken from it. And that opens up new questions about labour. So I don't think this book, this book is a beginning, not an end. I think there's lots of things that are not in the book, you know, working class patriotism, working class conservatism. There's, there's loads of things that, we, that could have been dealt with. And I think the book is trying to open doors rather than close them. Finally, um, at the end of the book, we, we, we do try and look forward and say, well, this is a tradition. What is the left in this tradition that's still interesting? And so the conclusion is called Looking Forward Civil Society After, after State Socialism and Before Neoliberalism. Beyond Neoliberalism. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and Beyond Neoliberalism, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And so what we're, what, we're trying to, what we're trying to think about there is how do we sort of, if you're thinking about society in the present and the future, how do we rebuild a rich and diverse civil society for the future after the decline of many of these institutions that we've talked about? And I think, we, I think what the book brings out is you know, how, how unfortunate the decline of some of those institutions were, you know, particularly the cooperative movement, but also the, the decline of the churches, the, the, the associational life associated with the church. Churches. And much later, the decline of the trade unions, which held out much longer as, as separate associational organisations. So how do we foster associational life, collective self-help, community, locality, and protect this from, this from dangers from both sides? So I think one of the things we discuss is that, yes, neoliberalism is, is a potential danger to civil society. And you think of examples like the private privatisation of building societies and monopolies and things, uh, not monopolies, mutuals and things like that. But on the other hand, we've got the whole sort of Soviet experience and we've got the, to some extent, even the social democratic experience of the way, the way in which a, a, an, a too strong state starts, starts to weaken civil society as well. So how can we create a sort of balanced solution from that? I think I'll stop there.